1986, musician Miguel Ángel Villavicencio was sitting with his friends at a restaurant in a small town in El Chapare, Bolivia's tropical region. At the time, this place was also an epicenter for cocaine production. The owner of the restaurant interrupts his conversation and tells Miguel Ángel that someone at the door is looking for him. He gets up slowly, he starts walking toward the door, and... The first bullet went through his jaw before he even hit the ground. The second bullet hit his spine. He lay stunned on the ground, and when he tried getting up, he noticed that his legs weren't responding. To make sure that he was dead, the gunman fired two more times. From NPR and Futuro Media, it's Latino USA. I'm Maria Hinojosa. Today, a Bolivian drug smuggler and his long road to redemption. Producer Andres Caballero brings us the story of Miguel Ángel Villavicencio, whose dreams of becoming the next Julio Iglesias turned into a fight for forgiveness and survival. Here's Andres with the story. His friends immediately threw him in the back of a pickup and rushed him through the jungle to the nearest hospital. And, by the way, we hired an actor to translate Miguel Ángel's words. The most likely scenario was bleeding to death on the way to the hospital. So, when I realized that I was about to die, I decided to have a conversation with God. Imagine a drug smuggler speaking with God. But that's what happened. The way I saw it, drug smuggling was just a business. It wasn't a crime. And while he was bleeding to death, he managed to pray. Don't let me die. If you let me live, I promise I will dedicate what's left of my life to serving you. Forgive me. Three decades later, Miguel Ángel is certain that the reason he's even alive today is because of that prayer on the way to the hospital. He's convinced that that day God had mercy on him. But the damage from the bullets that ripped through his body left him without the use of his legs and in a wheelchair permanently. These days, he visits churches all over Southern California, singing original songs about his spiritual awakening. Miguel Angel sits in an SUV parked in front of a church where he's often invited to sing. He's wearing a button-up shirt and a dark blazer, and he's waiting for his son Luis to bring his wheelchair. Inside, the pastor greets him and takes him in front of a congregation of about a hundred. Miguel Ángel scoots his wheelchair up to the podium, puts on a pre-recorded backing track, and begins to sing. This song is called No Estoy Muerto, I'm Not Dead. The lyrics talk about how God completely transformed him from his old sinful ways in the drug business. That before, he was spiritually dead, but that now, he's alive. When Miguel Ángel was growing up in Bolivia, before he got involved in the drug trade, he had always wanted to be a singer. But back then, he wasn't interested in Christian music. Ever since I was a kid, I've loved singing. I always dreamed of becoming famous. Miguel Ángel was raised by his grandmother in La Paz, 
one of the biggest cities in Bolivia. When he was 17, he started a band with his friends, and when that group dissolved, he auditioned solo at Restaurante Los Escudos, which was apparently the place to be for live music in La Paz. His first time singing at Los Escudos, he recalls the presenter going up on stage and saying, Esta noche en Restaurante Los Escudos nace una estrella. Ladies and gentlemen, tonight at Restaurante Los Escudos, a new Bolivian star is born. I'm with you, Miguel Ángel. That night, Miguel Ángel took the stage wearing a flowered button-down, a dark blazer. In photos from the time, he has brown wavy hair with sideburns that reach down to his lower jaw. Aquella noche canté, and that night, I sang a Julio Iglesias song called La Flor de Piel. People started clapping halfway through the song, and in that moment, I knew that I would be a singer for the rest of my days. It's not hard to hear the roots of Miguel Ángel's style. Julio Iglesias, Sandro. The Latin American love songs from the 80s and 90s, where a hair-gelled Latin heartthrob would work the stage with those sensual performances, unbuttoned shirts, and so on. And Miguel Ángel starts doing really well as a singer. A few years later, his songs were being played on the radio. And then he even gets invited to Don Francisco's Sábado Gigante, a legendary Saturday night variety show in Latin America, which was still based in Chile at the time. And even though Miguel Ángel was on his way to national stardom, Bolivia's music industry wasn't big enough to make him the international sensation that he wanted to become. For that, he needed to be in Mexico, Spain, the U.S. And to go to these places and to market himself, he needed money. So he spoke to a friend whose family was in the drug business. By then, cocaine had become a thing in the U.S. So I came to the conclusion that if I got into drug trafficking, I could easily make a fortune. His friend introduced him to Bolivia's most powerful drug cartel, headed by Roberto Suarez Gomez, also known as the Cocaine King. Suarez came from a family of cattle ranchers, but when the drug became popular in the U.S., he invested in coca plants and started producing cocaine. As consumer demand grew, tons of cocaine were being produced in Bolivia. Roberto eventually retired and handed control of the business to his nephew, Jorge Roca Suarez. Remember that name because it's going to be important. And this man, Jorge Roca Suarez, became the main player and business partner of Escobar's Medellin cartel. The coca leaf is everywhere in Bolivia. It's been used for thousands of years by the Aymara and Quechua for ceremonial purposes. And many people chew it daily to stay awake or to get an energy kick. It's also good for altitude sickness and to stave off hunger. At any market in the cities, you'll likely see giant bushels of coca leaves. And the countryside is filled with coca fields. It's also, of course, the key ingredient in cocaine. Bolivia quickly became one of the biggest suppliers of coca leaves to Colombia's cocaine labs, as well as a major producer of cocaine itself. 
Miguel Ángel remembers seeing the Cocaine King's Ranch for the first time. Una cantidad impresionante. It was an incredible amount of drugs. I'd never seen anything like it. He said the house was filled with piles of bags of cocaine base. Back then, the cartel would sell it to the Colombians for about $9,000 per kilo. The Colombians would then smuggle it and sell it in the U.S. for many times more. And so, in the early 80s, Miguel Ángel started off by helping transport the merchandise by land or by air. And later, he became the guy who coordinated bribes to local officials. As an outsider, going by what you see on TV, the perception is that smugglers are bad, violent men who are always talking about killing and so on. No. Bolivian and Colombian drug traffickers, at least in those days, were easygoing guys who were nice to talk to. A few times, Miguel Ángel came face to face with Pablo Escobar. Whenever he saw it necessary, he would get on one of his private jets and go check on his business associate in Bolivia. On three occasions, I arrived to the ranch, and there he was. I would just say hi, shake his hands, and that was it. A cierta distancia y luego un estrechón de manos, pero de ahí nada más. To Bolivian smugglers, Escobar's business brought more than just enormous wealth. It also brought scrutiny from the U.S. Drug Enforcement Agency, or DEA. The DEA had been operating in Bolivia since the 1970s, and they often worked with the government to crack down on illicit coca plantations and trade. But in the 80s and 90s, the U.S. started going after the cartels more aggressively. To do that, they had to work closely with local law enforcement. But sometimes, the cartels were also working with the police. When I arrived to work in El Chapare, there was already a special anti-drug trafficking force called the Leopards. The Leopards were Bolivia's elite anti-drug force, but they were also known to take bribes. So we started bribing the commander so that he would allow the drugs to go through. One day, Roca Suárez, the drug lord, asked Miguel Ángel to deliver a bribe to a commander. But according to Miguel Ángel, there was a misunderstanding with grave consequences. He says he never received the money to pay the commander off, so he never ended up going through with the bribe. When the police commander didn't get the money he was promised, he got angry and retaliated with arrests. Entonces, nunca pude comunicarme I never had a chance to communicate with Jorge Roca Suarez to tell him that I never received the money. He assumed I stole it. And without thinking twice, he sent his own criminals to kill me. They were criminals, but they were also my friends. <laughs> but that's how the drug business works. You have no friends. You just have accomplices who at any moment will turn on you after a simple order from the boss. Which brings us back to the day at the roadside restaurant, when a gunman walked in the door and fired at him. That day, a bullet had shattered his teeth and broken his jaw in two. While dying on the way to the hospital, the first question that came to his mind was, ¿Por qué? Why? I was a man who was doing things right. I was an honest drug smuggler, if the word honest even fits in this type of activity. Miguel 
Miguel Ángel made it to the hospital alive, but he woke up without the use of his legs. He was paralyzed from the waist down, and he would have to be in a wheelchair for the rest of his life. Fearing that Roca Suárez would send more hitmen to finish the job, Miguel Ángel fled the country for several months. When he returned to Bolivia, he was a changed man. He had found God. And now, he was focused on two things. Number one, writing gospel songs with lyrics that talked about peace and love. And number two, fixing his wrongdoings and seeing if he could help the authorities bring down the cartel. So he decides to get in touch with Frank Macolini, then the head of the DEA in Bolivia. And speaking with a gringo accent, he tells me that I'm a criminal. Oh, Miguel, tú eres un delincuente, me dice, no? So I reply, my dear friend, I was once a criminal, but I am no longer. And that's exactly why I want to work with you. After the exchange, Miguel Ángel agreed to provide information about cartel operations and to help build a case against drug lord Roca Suárez. Eventually, Miguel Ángel would have to testify against them at a U.S. court. In exchange, the DEA would give him a cash salary, find him a home, a car, and eventually, they would help him get situated in the U.S. According to Miguel Ángel, he and his family were offered to be put on the U.S. government's witness security program, meaning they would be relocated to an unknown place with a new identity for their own safety. The offer, he says, was verbal. It was never put down on paper. They would help me find a job so I can work, like everyone else. And then I would completely disappear. Once the DEA built a case against Roca Suárez, Miguel Ángel was asked to help find out his location and tip off the DEA with information on his whereabouts. Through his contacts in the drug world, Miguel Ángel managed to track down a flight that Roca Suárez would soon be boarding in Miami. He then traced his movements all the way to the 19-bedroom mansion that he owned in Los Angeles. They caught him, they arrested him, and that's when I had to immediately leave Bolivia. Miguel Ángel recalls quickly packing things up, getting into a car with his family, and being escorted to the airport by four DEA agents. The kids were very little. One was less than five, and the others around seven. They didn't really know what was happening. Luis, who is now in his 30s, was that five-year-old. I remember having to go from, like, one house to the other with my dad and my brothers days before leaving Bolivia to come to the U.S. When you're that small, you think that's how the world functions, and that's what I thought was normal. And when the plane took off, I could finally breathe peacefully because I knew that I was heading towards a better life. What I didn't know was that once I helped them put this guy away, the DEA would eventually betray me. up on Latino USA. The DEA sends Miguel Ángel and his family to the U.S., where he would testify against the drug lord Roca Suárez in exchange for a better, safer life with his family. Or so he thought. 
Stay with us. No te vayas. Comedian Nicole Byer has some thoughts on organized religion. 10% of your earnings going to the church is an insane thing to ask. Like, that's how much I pay my agent and my manager. Do you know what I'm saying? And they, <laughs> and they get, get me jobs. The Gospel According to Nicole. Listen to It's Been a Minute from NPR. We're back, and we're going to continue now with the story of Miguel Ángel, the Bolivian drug smuggler turned religious singer. And when we left off, the DEA had taken Miguel Ángel to the U.S. to seek protection and to testify against his former boss, the drug lord Jorge Roca Suárez. Producer Andrés Caballero picks up the story now. When Miguel Ángel and his family got to California in January of 1992, they started living in a hotel. There was always agents around. They were pretty fun, too. Luis, Miguel Ángel's youngest son, says that DEA agents would show up to give his dad surveillance equipment for monitoring drug activity along the U.S.-Mexico border. They would also bring big stashes of cash for him. To my understanding, it was part of my dad's job, and I knew I couldn't say anything about anything. Our neighbors, the kids would, like, talk about their parents and what they did and stuff, and, like, I knew that I couldn't mention anything about what my dad did. The DEA finally got them a house while Miguel Ángel waited to testify against Roca Suárez. By then, he had been passed on to another supervisor, which worried him because Frank, his original contact in Bolivia, had his back. This new guy, he didn't really get along with as much. By the end of the year... It was time for Miguel Ángel to finally testify against Jorge Roca Suárez. And there he was, in the same courtroom, waiting for the hearing to begin. He looked me straight in the eyes, almost in disbelief that I was there, testifying against him. Of course, there was the feeling of vengeance after someone orders you killed. But those feelings went away after I became a Christian. So in the end, I just felt victory over him. It was an act of justice. Miguel Ángel didn't only talk about Roca Suárez. He also outed other drug dealers in Bolivia. If I had to go back to Bolivia, I honestly don't know from which direction the bullet would come from. In part because of Miguel Ángel's testimony, Roca Suárez was eventually sentenced to 35 years in prison. In the eight months that followed, communication with the DEA started to slow down. Miguel Ángel started to worry. They stopped responding to his calls, his messages. He helped the DEA catch the big fish, and they disappeared on him. One day, two men showed up at his house to pick up the surveillance equipment. They also gave him the official notice that he no longer worked for the DEA.
After several weeks, Miguel Ángel says the DEA informed him that in the end, he would not be referred to the Witness Protection Program. Miguel Ángel was floored. Not being placed in witness protection meant that after testifying for the DEA, he was now on his own. Not only would he have to hide out from the drug lords who wanted him dead, he also had to avoid being deported back to Bolivia. Because now that his job with the DEA was over, his permission to be in the United States would vanish as well. And it wasn't going to be easy. We called the DEA, and they declined to comment on why Miguel Ángel was discharged or about whether or not he was promised witness protection in the first place. The Witness Protection Program is officially called WITSEC, and the way it works is the DEA refers candidates for the program to the U.S. Department of Justice. It's the Attorney General's office that makes the final decision to approve it or not. So the DEA, on their own, doesn't have the power to guarantee that somebody will make it into the program. In 2003, a professor at the University of Nebraska did a study looking at cases of foreign informants in the witness security program. He found a number of instances of informants who said the DEA did not keep verbal promises to place them in the program. And because of the language of the witness security law, U.S. agents can make promises to potential witnesses without any legal obligations to follow through. And even if agents aren't purposefully trying to deceive witnesses, given the complexity of the process, there's a lot of room for misunderstandings. Miguel Ángel said he would have never worked with the Americans unless they offered him and his family protection once it was all over. And even though he didn't have it in writing, he just went with it, trusting that in the end, the DEA would take care of him. Frank, the former agent in Bolivia, is the only person who can verify Miguel Ángel's claim that the DEA promised him witness protection. We try to contact Frank multiple times. We even try to relay a message through a family member, but he never got back to us. Now, out of a job and without legal status in the U.S., Miguel Ángel had to figure out what to do next. He and his wife were already having marital problems, and they eventually split up. She took the older kids, and he left with his youngest son, Luis, to Virginia. ¿De qué iba a comer? I had to figure out how to start a new life. How was I going to eat? Me on a wheelchair being pushed by a seven-year-old child to help me get to the nearest food bank, translating for me. Forget about it. Once Miguel Ángel used up all of his savings, he and Luis went on the lam. They started sleeping in people's garages, at churches. They eventually rented a room where they ended up staying more permanently. One afternoon, someone showed up at their door. Luis had just gotten home from school. He goes to the door and sees two men dressed up as plumbers. They knock on the door and I'm like, hi. And they're like, oh, we're plumbers. The owner sent us. Dude, I'm a kid. There's no way I'm letting you in my house because you said the owner sent. Even if the owner came, there's no way you're coming in, <laughs> you know? So I was like, chill, I'll be right back. You know, I lock the door. I go upstairs to my dad and I'm like, hey, plumbers are here. But my dad was like, yeah, let them in. According to Luis, the men look at his dad and ask him if his name was Miguel Ángel Villavicencio. I told them, yes. They were INS agents in disguise. Today, they're known as Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE agents. We're here to detain you after getting word that you are a dangerous criminal who is fleeing justice. And that's when my dad tells the agent, if you arrest me and you deport me, 
then they're going to kill me in my country for serving your nation. And that kind of shocked the agent a little. The officer asks if he had any proof of what he was saying. Miguel Angel brings his passport, and he shows them the special visa that DEA had issued years earlier when they brought him to the U.S. No es una visa regular. This isn't a regular visa. It's one that you get when you work for the government. The man looked at me and said, yes, that's what it looks like. Miguel Ángel says that the immigration officers decided not to detain him that afternoon, but they said that he would have to fight his deportation in court. According to court documents, Miguel Ángel was charged for being an alien who is not in possession of an entry document. The charges also stated that the government had reason to believe he had been an illicit trafficker or assisted illicit trafficking of a controlled substance. To Miguel Ángel, it looked like he was being double-crossed by the DEA. They were the only ones who knew about his history in the drug trade. On the day of the hearing at immigration court, Miguel Ángel says that the government's attorney claimed to have spoken with the DEA about their relationship with him. What did the agents say from the start? He never worked for us. We don't know him. And my dad and I were just like, what? These agents that would go to my house, they don't know him? In my head, I was, you're kidding, right? This is a joke. No, he never worked for the DA. Miguel Ángel then gives the judge a copy of a document he held on to, an informal contract signed by he and the DEA for his work with them. The contract refers to him as a, quote, DEA cooperating individual. But the second line from the top reads, quote, I have no official status, implied or otherwise, as agent or employee of the DEA. This meant that he was with them, but that he wasn't really one of them. It was also the reason he was getting paid in cash. Eventually, Frank, now retired from the DEA, agreed to testify in Miguel Ángel's favor via telephone. We got a copy of Frank's affidavit where he confirmed that Miguel Ángel helped the U.S. capture Roca Suárez and that his life would be in danger were he to be deported back to Bolivia. According to court documents, the government did not provide any evidence for the smuggling allegations, so the judge eventually dropped those charges. And years after, the immigration charges were settled as well. It took four and a half years from the start of the case for the official ruling to come in the mail in 2002. We're sitting outside on the stairs when we got the mail. I opened this envelope and there it was. And it was a ruling in our favor. And that was it. It was over. Luis was also protected from deportation along with his dad. I asked Luis, looking back at everything that happened to them, if he felt that they had found justice. When the drug lord decided that he was going to end my dad's life, he didn't end it, thank God for that. But he just didn't know that he was condemning his children to live in a certain lifestyle. You determine how they're gonna live for the rest of their lives. And I think that is not fair. On one end, there was Roca Suarez, the bad guy who tried to kill his dad, but instead left him confined to a wheelchair for the rest of his life 
And on the other end, there were the DEA, people who were supposed to be the good guys. A group of men that work to make things right come into your life and they tell you, we're going to make things right. And they paint you a picture of how they're going to fix everything as long as your dad works for them. And then at the end of the day, they bail. Then what do you turn to? What do you look for? We should mention here that despite the murky nature of the world of drug smugglers and informants, we have been able to corroborate many of the elements of Miguel Angel's life story. We have court documents from his immigration trial, court transcripts of the case when he testified against Roca Suarez. And then we found a ton of Bolivian newspaper articles, ranging from the 80s until the late 90s, that confirm his accounts. It's hard to say how common stories like Miguel Angel's are. There aren't exactly a lot of hard numbers available on people who feel betrayed by the DEA. But we do know that U.S. law enforcement and military so often rely on foreigners like Miguel Angel to risk their lives in order to complete their missions. Think of the Iraqi and Afghan translators who worked with the army, for example. These people are vulnerable. Often they have little to lose. And it's worth it for them to make a bet on the U.S. government and hope everything works out for the best. For some, it does. Others aren't as lucky. And if the U.S. loses the trust of people like Miguel Angel, it's going to be a lot harder to put people like Roca Suarez in prison. In 2008, after more than three decades operating in Bolivia, President Evo Morales gave the DEA three months to leave the country, accusing them of espionage and of fomenting violence. Meanwhile, Roca Suarez was extradited from the U.S. to Bolivia in 2018. Miguel Angel texted me a picture showing the former drug lord walking freely on the airport tarmac, wearing plain clothes, being escorted by three men. We'll see how much he suffered in prison. <laughs> Soon he will be free, but I will still be on my wheelchair, suffering the consequences from being on a wheelchair. After arriving in Bolivia, Roca Suarez claimed to have health problems while in prison. Soon after being relocated to a local hospital, Roca Suarez escaped. The Bolivian authorities are still looking for his whereabouts. One local newspaper released a video that allegedly showed Roca Suarez, now in his late 60s, peacefully eating at a restaurant in Santa Ana del Yacuma. Back in the California church where Miguel Angel is invited to sing, he finishes up his last song. Afterwards, people from the congregation come up to him to take pictures with him or buy a copy of his CD. <laughs> Miguel Ángel isn't afraid to confront the mistakes he has made in his life. They come up again and again when he shares his testimony at church. Talking about those mistakes and repenting for them have given him a purpose. 
It took a near-death experience to inspire Miguel Ángel to do what he thought was right and help the DEA. In turn, he put his faith in the DEA to do right by him. But he now realizes that he put that faith in the wrong place. And that at the end of the day, the only one he can really trust is God alone. This episode originally aired in January of 2019. It was produced by Andres Caballero and edited by Marlon Bishop. The voice you heard translating for Miguel Angel was actor Raúl Castillo. He's known for his work in the TV series Seven Seconds and Atypical and in the Sundance award-winning film We the Animals. The Latino USA team includes Miguel Macias, Sofia Palizacá, Luis Treyes, Antonia Cerejido, Janice Yamoka, Ginny Montalvo, Alice Escarce, and Alejandra Salazar, with help from Raúl Pérez. Our engineers are Stephanie LeBeau and Julia Caruso. Additional engineering this week by Leah Shaw. Our director of programming and operations is Natalia Fidelholz. Our digital editor is Amanda Alcantara. Our New York Women's Foundation Ignite Fellow is Julia Rocha. Our interns are Sofia Sanchez and Marie Mendoza. Our theme music was composed by Zenia Rubinos. If you like the music you heard on this episode, stop by latinousa.org and check out our weekly Spotify playlist. I'm your host and executive producer, Maria Hinojosa. Join us again on our next episode. And in the meantime, find us on all of your social media. Ciao. Latino USA is made possible in part by the Wincote Foundation, the Ford Foundation, working with visionaries on the front lines of social change worldwide, and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation.